business startups fail all the time. And there's one major element that stands in the way of entrepreneurial success. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The inability of entrepreneurs to handle the requirements of negotiation is the single biggest cause of failure. That's according to Samuel Dinar, co-author of Entrepreneurial Negotiation, Understanding and Managing the Relationships that Determine Your Entrepreneurial Success. Dinar is a mediator, consultant, and venture capital investor, as well as an instructor at Harvard Law School's Program on Negotiation. So he's well-versed in the subtleties of dealing with valued investors and getting startups off the ground. On the program today, we'll talk about some of the eight negotiation mistakes that entrepreneurs make and how they can prepare for the inevitable surprises that crop up during a pitch meeting. We'll also address the question of how the typical entrepreneur, who is often by nature highly individualistic and can be a difficult person to deal with, can acquire the necessary negotiating skills. So here is my conversation with Samuel Dinar. Well, Samuel Dinar, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Fascinating book called Entrepreneurial Negotiation, Understanding and Managing the Relationships that Determine Your Entrepreneurial Success. I know you're going to make me say that word entrepreneurial multiple times during this interview. <laughs> I'll do my best not to stumble over it. Uh, I want to start, though, by asking you, at the risk of stereotyping, is there something about the profile of the typical entrepreneur that just simply rubs against the whole notion of negotiation? Not really. It's an interesting question. I don't think so. I think on the contrary. I think entrepreneurs are by definition, people who need to negotiate for everything they have. When you start a company, you don't have any resources. You have to negotiate for those resources. You need to negotiate with co-founder or employees to join you even before you can pay them. You need to convince people to give you money so you can start having a facility or hiring people or conducting your research and development or engineering. You need to convince people to buy into the vision and be willing to buy a future product that is not ready yet from a company who may not be around in several months. You need to negotiate with partners to represent you, such as lawyers, before you can pay them. So even from the very early moment, entrepreneurs negotiate all the time. Negotiation is a critical part of entrepreneurship. That is what we found. And what we found is there are some typical mistakes that entrepreneurs make, but the need to negotiate is there through and through. Okay. I want to get into some of those mistakes you're talking about. But again, there's this idea of the stereotype, the cliche entrepreneur, the serial entrepreneur is the person who is kind of a my way or the highway, take no prisoners, never take no for an answer, individual, go it alone, uh, just push everything out of the way type of personality. Now, again, I'm probably describing a stereotype, but there is some truth in that in some of the most famous entrepreneurs. And it seems like those qualities would tend to conflict with negotiation, even as negotiation 
negotiation is required. So isn't it true, though, that there is a little bit of that in an entrepreneur, that that individual needs to learn some of the precepts of negotiation in order to go forward? I'll take that in two parts. One is the fact that this cliche or this stereotype does exist. It is a function of some of our pop culture image of the hero, the lone entrepreneur that develops something totally by themselves or with one co-founder in the garage and against all odds persisted when everybody said no and they went alone against the grain and they succeeded. That is a hero journey kind of story that makes for great storytelling. The facts are different. A lot of these successful entrepreneurs and many of them who've been continuously successful through the different stages of a startup are very collaborative, team players, patient negotiators, good problem solvers, and good with people. So I respect that the stereotype exists, but I think it is overblown in the proportion of the entrepreneurs that are that way. Now, it does exist, and there are entrepreneurs that are that way, and some of them have become very, very successful. That is true. And therefore, they make some of the typical mistakes that we talk about and that you mentioned, which is working alone too much or trusting their intuition too much. Or, or self-centered, for that matter. That's number one. Self, exactly. Self-centered or getting very competitive and wanting to win on every aspect, my way or the highway. We see those mistakes and we say some of those things are the things that make you successful as an entrepreneur. And the same things that may make you successful may get you into trouble, especially if you're thinking about the different stages of the startup, from seed, from idea to seed, to early startup, to growth, to revenue, to expansion, if you use the same techniques you used at one stage, when the company is now at a later stage, you will maybe do yourself a disservice. For example, when you start the company and you raise money from friends and family, and then angel investors... If you use those same techniques when you talk to friends and family and angel investors, once you're talking to professional venture capitalists or private equity firms, you're bound to fail. When you are now talking to a later stage venture capital firm, you use a different language. You're going through a different process than you would if you're talking to your uncle or to a local angel investor that wants to invest without the terms or the company having real assets yet. A basic question arises, though, when an entrepreneur is facing up against an angel investor or a venture capitalist and the, and the like, and it just makes me wonder whether entrepreneurs are really in any position to negotiate. Aren't they always starting from a position of weakness? It seems like the investors always hold the cards, or is that simply an illusion that the investors want to create in order to win in the negotiation? In many negotiations, that is a perception of power that people can go into a negotiation, and it is not necessarily the truth. Any negotiation is a coming together of two people who have interests that they can't serve on their own, but that they can achieve by finding trades or working together with the other party. So mm -hmm. when an investor meets with you, they have their interests. There are reasons they are there and there are reasons they want to work with you. So that gives you some power. That gives you some status in this meeting. 
Now, you don't want to push it too far because there are things you want from them and you have to respect their status. And a lot of different statuses come into play when you're talking about two people meeting. But definitely, if you have started a company and it is very innovative and attractive, there will be several VCs or angel investors that want to invest. Your power comes from getting them interested and from having other alternatives to them only. If you are sitting in front of one VC and it's the only VC in the world that invests in the things that you do, you don't have an alternative, you may feel powerless. But if there are other people who may invest in this company, that is where your source of power comes from. Many of the case studies that you highlight in your book and indeed in life as well indicate a condition or, or an event that happens all the time in these negotiations, and that is the entrepreneur goes in there with his or her 10-minute presentation, the slide deck that he or she is ready to show, the spiel that he or she is ready to deliver, and within seconds that's derailed by the investor. They start to ask questions. They don't want to look at the proposal. They're starting to slag the proposal from minute one. This is a common thing, is it not? And I'm just wondering, how do you prepare yourself against the almost certainty that you're not going to be allowed to go through with your presentation, no matter how well you rehearsed it? Yeah, that was an excellent description, and you're right. This is very common. The way I recommend to look at it is a little bit contrarian, because it's called the pitch, and that is what the entrepreneur, as you described, prepares and is ready to deliver. But a pitch suggests a one-way communication. The reason I like to frame it as a negotiation, because it is a two-way communication. And there are two things that I think are really important. One, we already touched on. What are the interests on the other side? Why are they here? What did they want to see? What are they really interested in? Why are they doing this? That is where the value will come from, tailoring a deal that serves their interests well, and your interests very well. That's your objective. The other thing is to show curiosity about why they are saying or doing what they're saying and negotiating a process. Every negotiation has a process. If we assume the process is going to go our way, like the entrepreneur you described, or we have a case like this in the book, where the entrepreneur thinks, I'm going to present these 18 slides for the first 15 minutes, and then I'm going to show them my prototype. Mm -hmm. But they disrupt it after slide two, and they say, hey, let's just play with the prototype. No, no, we'll, we'll look at the slides later, but we really want to just look at the prototype. Now, you are negotiating the process. And what happened in this case, now you're having a power struggle and a status power struggle over who controls the process. So I like to say, negotiate your process of negotiation in the beginning of your negotiation. And if you think you're going to go through the slide and you say, hey, I've got 15 slides, I want to go over them, then I want to show you the prototype. And they say, well, we glanced at your slides already over the mail and we just want to play with the prototype now. Ask why, be curious. For example, they may have seen three companies that try to do what you do, and they already know what's coming in the slides. And for them, what's really important is the UI. And if they say after a minute of looking at it, eh, that won't work. Instead of getting defensive and shutting yourself down and not really listening to the input they have, instead, turn it to being curious. Why don't you think it would work? What have you seen elsewhere that makes this not work? And by realizing that they have their own interests, but they also they have a lot of valuable input because they see other companies and other prototypes, you will be able to gain more information 
and have a two-way discussion instead of just a pitch. In one particularly unsettling moment that you describe in your book, the investors simply say, no, your idea won't work. And by the way, we're working on that ourselves now. We can't tell you too much about it, but we're already doing something like that. And that, that would like throw me a real loop if I was there. It would almost be like, well, why are we even talking if you were already planning on something like this? I just wonder how you react to something like that. You prepare for that emotional event before going in. You have to be ready for things like that to happen. And by preparing mentally for these eventual expected surprises, you will be less surprised. It may reinforce an assumption you had. Maybe they are working on something similar. And you may then decide not to share certain things that you were thinking, if they're not, I would share. But if they do, I won't share. The worst thing you can do is be triggered emotionally and react instinctively in a way that would shut you down. Our bodies are wired for a fight or flight or freeze kind of reaction. And when we are not in control, that's what we'll do. We'll get emotional, we'll shut down, we won't hear things, we'll hear only the things we want to hear, and we'll either pick a fight or we'll shut down and leave and never want to do business again with these people because they're not trustworthy. And we may have missed an opportunity to address the situation. And in some cases, I've seen this happen firsthand. You may miss the opportunity to join in in whatever they're doing as a partner to their company that they're working with or put these two technologies together and build a real strong company. Mm -hmm. Those are possibilities that could happen. But if you never explore them, they will never happen. I'm fascinated by the concept of the walkaway on a couple of levels. And one is that this dynamic of negotiation always seems to say, one, one of the tenets of it, is that you should never appear too needy in a negotiation because that turns off the other side. But there are two types of walkaways. One is the point at which you are willing to walk away from a negotiation because it's just not meeting your needs. And the other is the impression you want to give of being ready to walk away, which may not actually jive with what you actually are willing to reject. So you talk a little bit about how you carry that into a negotiation and how you should put out that feeling without having it be too off-putting for the other side. One of the aspects that's really key in negotiation, we talked about emotions and egos, and the reasons they're so heightened is because complexity and uncertainty are a very dominant factor. The other thing is the relationship, the long-term relationship aspects. When you're building a lot of these entrepreneurial relationships, they are long-term. They will be full of exciting highs and exciting lows. You will have to work through some rough periods. And some of them are irreversible. They are a little bit like getting married. If you're two co-founders starting a company, now this is your baby. And when the two co-founders eventually want to separate, this is very much, and I mediate these kinds of disputes, that I teach that and I do that. That is very similar to a divorce mediation. And the baby is the company. When you are taking money from an investor, significant amount of money, later on, whose company is it? Is it your company because you invented the idea? Or is it the CEO's company because he came in early and he built a lot of it? Or is it the investor's company because he put up more or she put up most of the money? So those questions become real difficult to undo. And that relationship aspect is really key. 
And trust becomes a very important factor. So you may want to leave and go to your walkaway if your walkaway is better than a deal. If an investor tells you, here's the terms I'm willing to give you money at, but there's another investor that's willing to give you different terms and maybe is better for you because of more value add or because the financial terms are better or something else is better, then that is a legitimate walkaway to say, look, I can't accept this because I have an alternative that is better. I want to do business with you, but these are the things that will have to be fixed in order for me to find a deal at the table better than my walk away. That is a real power in negotiation if you have that alternative. What about the risk of pretending that you have another offer on the table, which gives you supposedly power, but of course that is a bluff that could be called. Right. Do you advise that an entrepreneur sometimes do that, or is that a mistake. Bluffing or lying in negotiation have to do with the trust building aspects. And this is where you have to be very, very, very careful. To build trust, we advise on two simple rules. One is do as you say, and the other is say as you do. I will not lie or bluff at the table with something that then I can't follow up with. If I say, if you don't come down below 100, I'm going to walk out of this room and we're done, and they don't, and I don't walk out, I've just eroded trust. Because the next time I say something, they won't believe me. So I will be very hesitant to lie in negotiation, especially when these are long-term relationships, and these are small communities, and word gets around. Again, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of venture capitalists have been very, very successful with a lot of huffing and puffing and bluffing. And so their instinct will tell them to do so. And we advise to do it very cautiously and to do it only when you really are willing to follow through, especially if there's nothing that's changed in the external environment. So if I'm negotiating with you and I tell you I will never accept anything lower than 100 or anything higher than 100, and nothing's changed in the dynamics. I didn't go out and make a phone call. We didn't take a break for a few days. But within 10 minutes or 15 minutes later, I'm willing to pay you 110. You now know that either I was bluffing in the beginning or that I am outside of my authority of what I should be allowing to do. And so your trust is eroded. So very cautiously and therefore Think about these things before going into the negotiation. You should spend a lot of your time preparing and thinking about what sentences and how you're going to be saying about your walk away or your alternatives, because those are very, very sensitive things. The minute I mention my walk away, it comes across as a threat. One of the mistakes you cite here is that entrepreneurs haggle. What is the difference between haggling and negotiation? Yeah, so haggling is a very specific closed mindset where we are negotiating one item and we're focusing on that item and it's a win-lose situation. More for me is less for you and less for me is more for you. And so now we are pulling that rope this way or that way and we're threatening and we're bluffing and we're anchoring and we're trying to do a lot of the hard bargaining tactics, but our mindset is closed. We're not thinking about creative solutions. We're not thinking about creating more items to discuss and finding trades and creating value. We're just trying to divide this 
small pie that we're focusing on between me and you and egos and competitiveness gets in the way. And people may sit there and do it for a long time and they may walk away at the end feeling good that they have haggled hard and they found the right compromise. And they may have missed several opportunities of really creating value. And so when you get into a haggling mindset, when you're thinking it's all about price or it's all about this thing or that thing, and we're just going back and forth, high, low, high, low, step back, look at the big picture and say, what other items, what other interests can come into play here? What other things can we throw in the mix to make this a more complex multi-agenda items that we can find trades? If I find something that you really value and I don't value as much, that's great because I can trade it for something that's more important for me. So even price, if you're locked in on just price, break it down into several items. There's the actual price. There's the actual payment terms. How much do I pay now? How much do I pay later? There are future discounts or future loyalty or future opportunities that may come with it. There are warranty terms. There are a lot of things. There are currency risk issues. There are many things that we can negotiate beyond price. And then we can have this, instead of a haggle, be a multi-item negotiation where we can add more value and find more trade. Well, there's so much more we could talk about. Indeed, you lay out eight mistakes that entrepreneurs typically make, and they're all valuable, but I'm afraid we don't have time to go into all of them at the moment. But your book, Entrepreneurial Negotiation, Understanding and Managing the Relationships that Determine Your Entrepreneurial Success, is a valuable resource for this, and I'll be linking to it in the show notes to the episode. Samuel Dinar and, of course, your co-author, Lawrence Suskind, I want to mention him as well. Samuel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and good luck to all the listeners in your negotiations. That was my conversation with author Samuel Dinar, talking about the keys to successful entrepreneurial negotiation. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.